0: The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, we've had a steady stream of economic data and reports around house prices from the CSO, construction activity from BNP Paribas, and negative commentary on the government's budget plan from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council and the Central Bank of Ireland. To help me navigate this, I'm joined in studio by John McCartney, Head of Research at BNP Paribas Real Estate, and on the line by Owen Burke-Kennedy, the economics correspondent of the Irish Times. I began by asking Owen to take us through the headline data points from the week, starting with the house price figures from the CSO, which showed a year-on-year price increase nationally, but a decline in Dublin.
2: Yeah, very busy week on the report front. It started off obviously with um B Pyropus' latest PMI on the construction sector, as you said, detailing a very sharp fall off in commercial construction here. And obviously that seems to be predicated on a fall off in demand, which we're seeing globally, and obviously that's on the back of higher interest rates. So where that leaves the government's housing targets and it is difficult to know. It's obviously related also to a fall-off in office demand, and that's obviously related to remote working and hybrid working arrangements. Uh, then on Tuesday, we had the CSO's monthly house price data, and that showed, again, a softening in headline house price inflation falling to just over 1% nationally and staying negative uh, in terms of the market in Dublin. And obviously we've been expecting this so there's no real surprises a lot of the industry are talking about you know I dread to use this term but a soft landing so inflation rate you know coming down to kind of zero maybe touching into negative territory nationally they're already in negative territory in Dublin and obviously again that relates to higher mortgage costs basically the ability of potential buyers to uh, you know purchase a home with the increase in borrowing costs so there was one thing not worth mentioning just in the CSO's data the the house price inflation for um new homes still running at around eleven percent, and that's an interesting one because obviously that has something to do with the government's uh, support schemes, and that's worth touching on again in in, in discussion later. And then uh, obviously to one side of all this, we've had a pretty strong chorus of concern um, around the government's spending plans in the budget.
1: Just take us through what what
2: IFAC said. I suppose that was uh, pretty hard-hitting. So, yeah, first, the central bank warned uh, in its quarterly uh, commentary that proposed changes to income tax and spending increases above the 5% spending rule, and this was flagged by the coalition in, in its recent summary economic statement, would probably keep inflation higher for longer here, and it was amplifying demand in an economy already operating at capacity. Now, that warning then was followed up by the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which issued one of its sharpest rebukes of government policies to date. They claimed that the government's budgetary package, at least its proposed one, and we don't know the final parameters of it, would um, could potentially destabilise the economy and fuel further price increases. Now, its main beef with the government is that it, uh, its breach of the spending rule isn't just for 2024. Now this is a uh, you know a rule that the government adopted in 2021 to keep spending within a five percent range each year. Now it's saying that the government plans based on its forecast to break this spending rule repeatedly out to 2026. and by 2026, core spending will be four billion higher than what it would have been in the plans outlined by the same government in its stability program update back in April. So the Fiscal Advisory Council was was pretty uh, sharp in its condemnation of the government. It described the breaches as serious, and obviously, um, you know, th- 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 that comes on the back of of the central bank and uh, concerns registered by the ERSI. So at the moment, we have the the kind of main national institutions and think tanks all basically registering concern about the government, and of course, the the main thing is that. The government's plans seem to be uh, coming at a time when we've still got elevated inflation and when we've got a, a very tight labour market, and when that 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 means the economy is running at close to full capacity. And when you're fueling more demand into that, you might get uh, you know further inflation or at least uh, high inflation for longer. And the problem that the central bank seems to. Uh, say about that is if we get out of kilter with the rest of the euro area on inflation, and that would mean our inflation path would differ from the rest of the euro area, we're in no position to act on that because our central bank is essentially, you know, part of the European Central Bank, which is going to be basically orchestrating rates for the euro area as a whole.
1: It must be said, Owen, that we're not out of kilter at the moment, are we? I mean, Eurostat figures there during the week showing that Irish inflation was running at about 4.9% in August, below the uh, eurozone average of
2: 5.2%. No, we're, we're definitely not out at the moment, but I suppose the, the, the IFAC's warning and the central bank's warning is that the proposed budgetary package this year, and by the way, we haven't seen the fi- final parameters of it, and the ones in forthcoming years could keep inflation higher for longer. And what we've seen on the inflation front is that while the first phase was predicated on higher energy prices globally, they're worried that the next phase may be generated by domestic issues, and of course the tight labour market here is one that's oppressing. We have, we have the you know, lowest level of unemployment we've had for decades, so that's, that's one that's, that's feeding into these concerns, and obviously it um, makes for a pretty heady budget day examination of the Minister McGrath's you know, uh, package.
1: Yeah, okay. A lot to get through there. Uh, let's maybe focus on the BNP report because uh, I'm joined here in studio by John McCartney, who's head of research at BNP Paribas Real Estate and is the author of uh, that report. And as Owen said, John, um, it showed that commercial building activity has fallen at the sharpest rate in more than two years. And to some people,
0: that might be a, a cause of concern, but you've actually welcomed it. Why? Oh, I think so. I mean, it's, I think, common knowledge that the vacancy rate in the office market, for example, has been rising. So if we go back to the immediate pre-COVID situation, the end of 2019, the vacancy rate in Dublin offices was around 5% today. That stands at about 12.1%. And actually, there's an avalanche of further uh office completions to come over the next six months that will propel that up I think to about 15.5%. So, um, so basically
1: what does that vacancy rate mean? Is it essentially if it goes up to 15-16% one
0: in six offices is vacant? Is, that a, is it as simple as that? It's as simple as that. I mean the one nuance I would add to it is that 11% is the tipping point historically between positive and negative rental growth. So anything over 11% is going to propel rents down and when rents go down things equal, the value of properties also falls. And that's clearly a problem because there's all sorts of collateral damage when you get into that. So I think it's a good thing that the building has slowed. Really, I was looking at the commencement figures, you know, there have really been no speculative commencements in the first seven months of this year. So the tap has already turned off at the most upstream point of the supply chain. And we will see this filtering through to slowing completions from 2024 and 2025. And I think that's a good thing uh, because you don't want to see a situation like we had back in 2010 when the vacancy rate went up to 24%, rents plummeted and the values were completely destroyed and then it spread into banking contagion and all of that.
1: That was post the 2008 banking and property crash here, um, as people I'm sure will recall so let's move on to the the other bits then. Um, for example, uh, housing price. I don't know what your view is on this, but we, we saw from the CSO data during the week, uh, still quite strong growth uh, year on year, certainly in the new homes market, as uh, Owen mentioned, but 3.8% outside Dublin. Not bad, you know, year on year. Uh, but in Dublin, down by 1.4%. How do you read that?
0: Well, I think there's a number of different ways of reading it, Kieran. My personal belief is that the estimates that get bandied around about housing demand are completely fabricated, really. Um, You know, nobody has a clue what long-term housing demand is, you know, because in order to try and predict that, you have to make a call – on things that are very hard to predict even at short time horizons never mind 30 years into the future for example net migration if you went back 4 years ago and tried to predict net migration in 2020 2021 and 22 where would you be you'd be you'd be absolutely miles off because we had on one hand we had the covid restrictions which completely put a stop to all of that and then it swung entirely the other way. And and you had the Ukraine war that's led to 88,000 uh, U- Ukrainian nationals fleeing uh, into Ireland from their own country. So, you know, these housing demand forecasts really are not worth the paper they're written on. And, and therefore, we've got it into our minds that we need whatever the number is this week. Um, but actually...
1: 30, 35, maybe 40,000, uh, according to some commentators.
0: Well, and some have even gone above that, but, I mean, if you just simply look at the pricing signals, you know, house price inflation now has been slowing since the spring of last year. The housing vacancy rate, as measured by the census, is about just under 8%, so that doesn't suggest that there's a, a, an acute shortage of... Of housing. Uh, We have 12,847 people accessing emergency accommodation. I know that's not the total figure of people in housing need, but it's a very small percentage of the entire population. It's about 0.24%. So there are certain metrics that challenge the idea that we have an acute undersupply of housing. And I think the pricing signals are, are one of those. Real house prices, both nationally and in Dublin are falling, nominal house prices in Dublin are falling, rents rental growth uh, has, has slowed substantially uh, as well if you look at the private rents component of the consumer price index. So my take is that supply has caught up with demand or is at the point where it is catching up with demand. Um, and I suppose to Owen's point about the new homes inflation, you wonder where house price inflation would be if it hadn't been for... Uh, the shared equity scheme and help to buy and the relaxation of um, mortgage lending rules and the rebuilding Ireland home loan or the local authority home loan, as it's called now, all fueling housing demand. Right, so housing crisis, what crisis, says John McCartney? Well, I think it's a matter of how we define it, Kieran. You know, generally, the rate of inflation is your lens into the balance between supply and demand in the market at this moment in time. And that's clearly not a problem, but where we clearly, I think, do have a problem is that we have high house prices and rent levels relative to incomes. And when you think about it in those terms, it becomes clear that there's only two ways to resolve that. One way is to reduce house prices, uh, but no government... I think is going to pursue a strategy of of reducing house prices when 70% of households have housing equity that would be destroyed by that course of action. And therefore, the only remaining approach, apart from doing nothing, which is probably, I think, what they should do, but politically that's not possible. So I think the only remaining course of action is to try and boost incomes to allow people to pay the higher prices that are being asked for, for housing. Owen, let's go back to the
1: uh, house price data for new homes. You mentioned uh, double-digit inflation increases according to the CSO figures.
2: Yeah, so they have um, new home inflation just done on a quarterly basis uh, as opposed to a monthly basis. So for the second quarter, the average cost of new homes was up 11% year-on-year. That contrasts with the overall uh, price of homes, which was up just 1.5% in the year to July. So, quite a sharp contrast there. And as John pointed out, um, we have those government schemes in the background helping with affordability. And to John's point, it's interesting that he, he takes um, a rather contrarian view on the supply mantra that seems to dominate the narrative here, mainly that it's not necessarily a supply issue, but an affordability issue. Um, you know, that, that, that's a, a valuable insight, uh, especially in the context of government policy. It's a pretty uh, interesting notion to think that would the government actually be better doing nothing uh, rather than announcing these schemes every few years, which don't seem to be, if you like, reducing house prices, but they do be uh, they do seem to help certain cohort of buyers uh, get on the ladder. Um, you know, it's, it's it's not a great reflection, is it, really, of the state's involvement in the property market.
1: Yeah, John, what's your read of that 11% uh, price increase? Is that down to the subsidies that you just mentioned there that the government is offering, that um, developers are simply able to put up the price of their
0: new homes? I think so, uh, primarily, Kiron. I mean, you could, I think, make the argument that it may reflect an increasing preference among consumers for A-rated brand new homes compared with what what they were prepared to pay as a premium for those homes 12 months ago. So that's possibly an element at the margin, but I think the bulk of it really relates uh, to the government's strategy of subsidising buyers to pay higher prices in the hope that that will then draw out more more supply. And in fact, higher prices are really the the objective of the exercise, although nobody's prepared to say that, and it does, I think, uh, question the wisdom of how do you hope to address an affordability crisis by driving up prices? It's perverse. And yes,
1: Michael McGrath has very clearly signaled that in the budget there is likely to be some some element of mortgage interest relief for uh, purchasers as well. And you have to imagine that's going to be inflationary too.
0: Well, on a yes-no basis, I think the answer is yes. But I think the devil will be in the detail there, Mm. Kieran. You know, um, if it is very closely targeted to people that are in genuine uh, distress, uh, I think, um, you know, the good may outweigh the negatives if if it was approached in that way. But it would need, I think, to be very, very uh, clearly contained. Yeah, sure. And...
1: I mean, the government has to act, doesn't it? Because Sinn Féin has the coalition government on the run in relation to the housing crisis and Sinn Féin is flying high in the polls. So the government have to do something and, and they really are searching hard for uh, for answers that they can deliver to uh,
0: to voters. Well, I think that has been the case for some time and I think you could argue that, that opposition has been dictating housing policy from, from the sidelines. But, you know, we still, at the end of it all, we have had really 20 years of a dysfunctional housing market. And, you know, it's not clear that there is any real strategy except to take taxpayers' money and uh, subsidise buyers of new homes with that money in the hope of drawing out more supply. But unfortunately, the subsidies then feed back into higher house prices again and so the benefits of that approach just get inflated away and you're back to square one again so it's it's quite depressing i think at ey our purpose is to build a better working world as one of ireland's leading professional services firms our exceptional people are at the center of everything we do we deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com.
1: Let's move from housing to offices. We had a story this morning in the Irish Times saying that Larry Goodman Jr. is paying, I put, €30 million euro for a Dublin office block on Lower Mount Street, which um, a lot of people would be familiar with if they saw the photograph of it. Now, the import of this is that uh, the price actually represented a, a 20% discount on what I put, which is a, a long-established uh, property investment fund in Ireland, a 20% discount on what i put was looking for now maybe iPut was over egging it um, was gilding the lily uh, somewhat in terms of the the guide price but nonetheless 20% is a is a very steep discount what does that tell us about the health of the office market at the moment
0: well i suppose interest rates uh, have have risen and it's it's axiomatic that when it, when interest rates rise uh, property yields have to rise as well because if you can get let's say 1% for putting your money in a bank or you can get 3% for investing in an office, it might justify investing in an office. If uh, deposit rates or bonds uh, provide a 3% return, then to justify the hassle of managing a, a, a real asset, then you're going to need that 2% premium, and so yields have to rise accordingly. And when yields rise uh, for a given level of rent uh, income, then uh, the value of properties declines, and that has been what has been happening across uh, all segments of the yep. commercial property 7% market. Seven percent
1: yield, we're told, for Larry Goodman Junior. on this property.
0: Yeah, and I think looking at that specific asset, another aspect of of it, Kieran, is the the age profile of of the particular building. You can see that it's an older office block. And it has been one of the big debates within the industry as to what do you do with second generation office blocks, as we call them. Um, You know, there has been a sharp swing in occupier preferences for uh, sustainable buildings, low carbon buildings. They have their ESG criteria to meet. Likewise, investors that buy properties um, for a fund, they have their own ESG investment criteria as well. So that makes it, clear that there is demand for these very uh, modern, high-performing, low-carbon buildings, but most offices are n- are not like that. Um, and therefore, what do you do with these older ones? Because they're going to require quite a significant amount of capex to, to bring them up to spec. Now, that's the situation at the moment. That could change, and there's a number of factors that could change that dynamic. So, at the moment, the greenness of a building is measured really by um, metrics like BRIAM and LEED and these sorts of uh, metrics scorecards uh, that rate the operational, primarily Mm. the the operational efficiency of a building. But of course, it's very wasteful to knock down a building and build a new one, even if that new one is operationally efficient. So in time, we may see that these metrics uh, evolve to recognize and reward the preservation of embodied carbon within the original structure, in which case um, it may assist the value of older buildings. Likewise, um, as time goes on, we have the decarbonisation of the grid. In other words, the electricity that's coming out of your plug hole is getting greener over time because um, we're we're generating that electricity more and more with renewables. And that may uh, impose over time a lower penalty in terms of rents and capital values on those older assets. And we just have to wait and see how that evolves, I think.
1: Yeah. Oh, and let's talk about the budget for a moment. It's coming up next month. Um, We've had in front of the uh, Oireachtas Budgetary Committee uh, this week, we've had the Central Bank and the SRI and IFAC um, giving their views on the government's uh, budgetary policy, which is to basically breach the uh, spending rule, the 5% spending rule that that you, you mentioned earlier. Um, And uh, I mean, some very strong uh, commentary. If you take IFAC, for example, it says that the uh, budgetary package has the potential to destabilise the economy and fuel further price increases. The Central Bank this week in a report said that the planned package for budget 2024, which I think is 6.4 billion in total, it risks uh, keeping inflation higher for longer. And the ESRI said in a report in uh, June that there was no rationale for tax cuts in the forthcoming budget. Um, and it said that we were now running up against capacity constraints, which you mentioned earlier, particularly in labour and um, the housing markets. And yet the government um, seems determined to go ahead and breach the uh, spending rules that it had kind of imposed on itself uh, only a couple of years ago. So why why is the government not listening to these very respected bodies and the criticisms that they've made, very strident criticisms that they've made of the planned budgetary policy?
2: Yeah, well, I think if you asked uh, some of the uh, people in these institutions, especially IFAC, you know, is the government just not listening to you? I think they'd probably characterize it in a different way. I think they feel the government is listening to a certain extent and that they have made a big impact under the debate. So they might say to you, the government might have been planning bigger spends, and have been kind of, if you like, um, constrained because of uh, the criticisms and because of the interventions of these institutions. So it's a typically economic uh, view of the world that what these institutions represent. They want governments to use fiscal policy to kind of smooth out the economic cycle. In practice, that means you know spending in a downturn to boost demand and cutting back when the economy runs too hot, which is the situation we're in now. And what I mean too hot is we're at, you know, full employment. And and it's a difficult thing to do. It's a really difficult political sell. Because just if, if you think about it, you know, we have one of the worst housing uh, problems in Europe. And at the same time, we have a, a veritable treasure trove of uh, tax receipts from the multinational sector. Uh, and basically presiding over a restrictive budget in that in that circumstance is, is just really difficult. And then you have gotta throw in the fact that we're on the brink of an election cycle and the incumbent administration is kind of adrift in the polls uh, on the back foot to Sinn Fein. So I suppose you know, the government would probably say it is listening and it's doing a certain amount in the direction of these institutions, but it's also, you know, drawn in a different direction politically so it's it's a very hard balance uh, balancing act i know uh, minister McGrath is intent on saying that he's 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 striking a balance between you know keeping a lid on public expenditure and uh, dealing with some of the pressing issues and ensuring that the finances are stable or put on a stable footing in the medium term now obviously you can pick holes in, in in all of those, in on all of those things and the context in which all of us are seeing the current uh, predicament is in the context of the finan- of what happened in the lead-up to 2008. If you remember, um, you know, the economy was overheating. We got warnings from various institutions around the world, including the OECD, and we used excessive tax receipts from a buoyant property sector to egg on the economy uh, with disastrous results in 2008. We then doubled down on this pro-cyclical stance by cutting back when the economy went into a nosedive after two thousand and ten. So, at various different points in the past, we seem to do what the economists don't want us to do, which is basically spend in a boom and cut back in a downturn. We do that's what we do, which is the opposite of what uh, the economists want us to do. So, these things—it's—it's just a very difficult mix, and you know. The electors probably don't help. Uh, they're screaming at the government, you know, to do more in terms of housing and health. And at the same time, um, they're also partaking in whether the government's spending too much. And so it's it, it, it's very tricky wicket now for the current administration to get things right.
1: John McCartney, you're an economist. Um, the country's awash with cash, uh Primarily because of the corporation tax receipts, I think it's going to be an excess of over a surplus of over 60 billion, they're telling us, over the next uh, few years. So is the government right to be breaching the spending rules at the minute or would you worry about that?
0: Well, my professional views are aligned with the critique that has already been issued by the SRI and IFAC um, and the central bank. It is a dangerous time, in a, in a way, to have such largesse at your disposal. And as Owen said, the, the political business cycle, uh, when we have a relatively short cycle, is, I think, really problematic from our point of view, and the polls don't help. So I, I would say more discipline is required. But of course, the reality is that um, you know everybody's lobbying for their amount, and it's difficult because they make arguments and the arguments don't necessarily have to be entirely defensible or definitive. They just have to be cogent enough to get a little bit of traction and it's created a political pressure. And then somebody has to go and make a case for to, to fund that. And that's the, the way it is. Housing being a, a classic example.
1: It's interesting that we're breaching the spending rules. And yes, Michael McGrath as Minister of Finance and Pascal Dunne, who is Minister for Public e- Expenditure, who will frame the budget between them, are presenting it as being a cautious, prudent budget package that they put together. 6.4 billion, we're told, so far. Who knows, on Budget Day, maybe it'll be a bit more, a bit less. We'll have to wait and see. But their, I mean, their narrative is that they're actually being very cautious and they're you know they're not going to splurge all of this uh, corporation tax receipts it's a hard
0: circle to square isn't it i know it definitely is they find themselves in in a, in a difficult predicament but i suppose the question is how uh, reliable are, are the corporation tax receipts into, What's your into view on the that? future. Well, I mean... What we we had, had that blip
1: in August where the, the numbers were down a billion euro year on year. Maybe it's just a one-off or maybe it's the beginning of a trend. What do you think?
0: Yeah, and we also have the 15% to come in for the, the bigger uh, companies, companies in Germany. and we yeah. have to wait and see how they respond to that. So uh, what we can say with certainty is, is that there is a high concentration of um, corporation uh, tax receipts coming from a small number of large companies, and that inherently is a risk situation because you're not diversifying your your income streams. So, is it prudent? My take on it would be, uh, given that particular vulnerability, and given the fact, as as Owen has alluded to, that the economy is tipping up to capacity and possibly operating beyond capacity, uh, that we should have you know uh, quite a tight budget on this occasion. But again, that's the head ruling the heart, and the heart dominates in politics, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, I guess. Um, but you know, we should be feeling good about the Irish
1: economy at the moment, shouldn't we? Because you know, so many of the metrics are really positive uh, in terms of our employment numbers, uh, in terms of the amount of savings that people have, in terms of the the level of exports. Were we're doing very nicely in terms of wages. Uh, seem to be pacing inflation, if you believe um, the data. So, the quality of life uh, for people here, you know, certainly relative to other countries, uh, is is very good. So we should be positive. And yet, with all this negativity around,
0: yeah, I, I mean, I think there are many things to be grateful for, and, and working is um, it's it's it just you know, the more people that we have at work, uh, the better The better it really is for everyone. So that's really positive. I mean, as I read it, real wages are still falling, you know. So um, in Q2, according to the EHEX, as far as I, I remember, the uh, wage inflation was averaging about 4.3%. So that's still a little bit below inflation. Um, so living standards are going to be pulled in by that and uh then there are these other things like housing costs which are a huge drain on families and cause great hardships for people so i think it is easy to understand uh why we don't have the feel good factor uh, that we might associate with just over 4% unemployment because people aren't feeling it in their pockets. There are many, many people um, and many, many households that are that are feeling the pressure. And certainly looking back, it's been a sustained drag, hasn't it really? You know, the, the erosion of earnings growth by, by inflation over the last couple of years has been quite, quite extreme, really. We haven't seen anything like it. I don't remember in my, my lifetime. Really, so uh, I'm, I'm not surprised uh, that that consumers are downbeat. Energy prices are going
1: to be a key metric uh, going forward as well, Owen, aren't they? We had results out for the first half of the year, the year from ESB, and um, this week Electric Ireland is a subsidiary of ESB, one of the big retail suppliers here. And you were talking to the um, chief financial officer there, who had some interesting. Uh, Commentary to give you on energy prices.
2: Yeah, Paul Stapleton, he is the CFO of ESB, and he was just commenting in the wake of um, the company's record profits, uh, half-year profits. Um, He said that you know, based on current wholesale trends, uh, consumers here could expect their you know energy bills to fall in the coming months, and I think that's what we've all expected, and that's what we've all been waiting for. Um, He talked about just. The, how uneasy the company was or conscious the company was about announcing these bumper profits at a time when households are struggling to pay energy bills. And of course, the ongoing narrative here has been why haven't the reduction in wholesale prices been passed on to the consumer uh, quicker. A lot of people have talked about the hedging policies of these companies have maybe been too conservative or bad, for want of a better uh, word. but. He seemed to knock that on the head. He told me that actually it wasn't down to hedging uh, as to why energy prices here are relatively higher than the rest of Europe, but it was down to the fact that the country is entirely, or, you know, sorry, not entirely, but very reliant on natural gas, and that has taken the brunt of the price surge uh, since COVID and since Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and to a lesser extent, the transmission costs, and that is to do with the fact that we have a very dispersed um Uh, population so he seemed to kind of poo the notion that it was down to the and others hedging but on the upside he did talk about prices being lower this winter than they were last winter and that prices are to come down and we've had an announcement today uh, again from another supplier uh, reducing prices so things looking up on the energy front for households um, in the short term at least.
1: Yeah John any view on energy prices and where they're going to go over the next
0: number of months? Well, uh, I I heard somebody speculate this morning that we could be up to $120 a, a, a barrel for, for oil. I mean, I think we're quite a distance uh, from that at the moment, but there has been a sharp pickup really since since June. And interestingly, uh, in our construction PMI, we did see that after nearly two years of consistently slowing um, input cost in inflation, that it, it picked up again quite sharply, actually, in both July and August and one possible reason for that I think is that the cost of construction materials like timber timber is a bulky product so it requires a lot of energy to to budget around similarly with with concrete and, and steel but the latter two also require a lot of thermal energy to produce and so, building materials are very closely. Uh, uh, the cost of them is closely related or correlated with oil prices and gas prices. So, uh, I think it, I think it is um, it is a concern. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, finally, John, final word to you. Just on uh, overall on the commercial property side, is this just a slight correction that we're going through at the moment? And you know, in the next, I don't know, year, two years, um things will have smoothed out, and and hopefully. Uh, be back on track and we'd be back in growth mode again or could we be in for a long spell of negativity in commercial property?
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty benign actually. I mean, if we take the office mark that we spoke about, uh, as I said, I think the vacancy rate is going to peak at around 15.5% if we consider um, that the tipping point between positive and negative rental growth is about 11%. That would imply that when we get to rock bottom, the market will have a surplus of about 200,000 square metres of of office space. Now, back in the day, um, every new job that was created would consume about 13 square metres of that space. Uh, with working from home, um, it's already gone down somewhat. It might go down lower. It might be 10 or it might be 9 Uh, But the key point here is that if the macroeconomic forecasts that we have at our disposal at the moment uh, are correct, then we're going to create uh, a lot of service sector jobs that will very quickly overwhelm any drag coming from uh, remote working. And I would expect that that overhang of surplus space will be digested pretty quick. And when that happens, then, uh, you know, it begins to... uh, Hand the initiative in rent negotiations back to landlords. Rents go up, values go up, and eventually you're back into a development cycle. But to try and put a time frame on it, my take on it is that office rents will be growing again in 2026. I think we'll see um, they're already falling by any meaningful metric, and by that, by that I mean if we um, if we factor in, you know. Um, discounts in kind like rent-free periods and things like that. I think they're falling and certainly average rents are falling if we disregard just the the rarefied air of the of the prime buildings. Uh, I think they will continue to fall for the next six months or a little bit longer. They'll stabilise I think in the second half of 2025 or certainly towards the end of 2025 and I think by 2026 allowing for all the lags in the system we'll be back into rent rental growth. And remote working hybrid working, call it what you want, is that here to Day, do you think, in your opinion?
1: Because there are, there's a sense that companies are wanting to get people back into the office a lot more. Uh, we're, we're seeing that with some uh, mandates. So, do you think that'll hold...
0: Yeah, the acid test really, Kieran, will be the, 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 the labour market. I mean, uh, we're not really testing anything with four, 4% unemployment. You know, uh, labour has the whip hand and employees can dictate terms. So I think we we won't definitively know the answer to that until unemployment starts going up again. And then I think we'll get to know pretty soon, certainly... Um, every divil and dog in the industry has given their opinion about it and most of them have been ill-informed, speculative and self-serving so I'm not going to add to that. All right, fair enough.
1: John McCartney of uh, BNP and Oamboer Kennedy of the Irish Times. Thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to John McCartney and Omburg Kennedy for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, Ui for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.